Welcome to CNS Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Mark Chamberlain, and to begin, he commented on primary CNS lymphoma. We struggle with how best to treat newly diagnosed patients with primary CNS lymphoma. And I think that's a problem within the community of neuro-oncologists that has special expertise in this area and aggravates that problem, I think, dramatically for practicing oncologists in the community in that we don't have an agreed-upon treatment. There have been very few randomized trials, and essentially all data has been driven primarily from single-institution studies with a fairly wide range of approaches. And because of this wide range of approach, there's been tremendous heterogeneity in how we treat such patients. And this problem comes up frequently when I'm asked about how I treat primary CNS lymphoma. I think the most popular treatment in the United States is a reflection of the fundamental work done at Memorial Sloan Kettering by Lisa DeAngelis and Lauren Abre that have popularized a methotrexate-based polychemotherapy regimen that uses whole brain radiation therapy as consolidative treatment. And I think that has probably had the most impact on how the community treats primary CNS lymphoma. But I will say that probably a majority of the neuro-oncology community has now discarded upfront radiotherapy in patients who have good response to methotrexate regimens. But we vary in whether or not we use single-agent methotrexate or methotrexate plus another agent in the German trial that happened to be ifosfamide. There are other German trials which have used other complicated regimens, and there's even a German trial that has suggested that patients should be treated with aggressive chemotherapy and rather than have whole brain radiotherapy as consolidation, go right to autologous bone marrow transplantation. So this is a confusing field with no clear resolution as to how we should best manage these patients. What about glioblastoma? What's happening in terms of clinical research that docs need to know about? We've had two large randomized phase three trials performed in patients who failed standard temozolomide-based adjuvant therapy, one of which was presented last year at ASCO and as well at SNOW, the Society for Neuro-Oncology annual meetings, and that's the so-called REGAL trial. And this was a trial using sinirinib, which is a vascular endothelial growth factor receptor inhibitor. And single institution studies from Harvard suggested that this may very well be an extremely active agent. And there was a lot of enthusiasm to taking this forward and testing it in a upfront randomized manner. And so in patients who had not seen angiogenic inhibition, i.e. bevacizumab or related agents, patients were randomized to receiving the study agent, Sinirinib, an oral agent taken daily, versus CCNU, which has increasingly been used now as the control arm and a standard nitrosiurea, oral nitrosiurea that we've used really for decades, and then versus in a third arm, the combination of both agents used together. And this is a so-called Regal trial. And somewhat to our dismay, Sinirinib with or without CCNU, did not prove to be any better than CCNU as a single agent, suggesting, and notwithstanding the apparent responses seen with sinirinib, they were not durable and did not prove any more efficacious than CCNU. 
There was as well, about a year and a half ago, a similar trial using enzostarin, a protein kinase C inhibitor, and there was much enthusiasm, again, based on a single institution phase two trial from the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, that suggested a marked activity of this oral agent, which had a very low toxicity profile. And again, that trial was designed in a very similar manner to the Regal trial with Sinirinib, where enzostarin was tested versus CCNU, and unfortunately, enzostarin proved inferior to CCNU in that study. So we've had two large randomized phase three trials using two very different agents that have proven not effective and have suggested, I think, as a new movement in neuro-oncology is to utilize CCNU as a comparator drug in further trials. And that's reflected in two new trials that are moving forward in Europe. One is the Dutch trial, the so-called BLOP trial. And that is a trial testing CCNU versus bevacizumab in recurrent glioblastoma patients. So the trial will have three arms comparing CCNU to bevacizumab to the combination. And this is really the first trial that has attempted to answer the question in a randomized manner with a standard comparator arm, is there an advantage, a survival advantage seen with bevacizumab? That trial is nearing completion, as suggested through personal communications with Martin Vandebent, the PI in Belgium, and Holland, and as well, this is leading to a much larger ERTC trial that basically uses a similar platform and likely will definitively answer the question, which is an unanswered question at this time, does bevacizumab, in fact, improve survival in patients with recurrent glioblastoma? What's your prediction in terms of what these studies are going to show? I think bevacizumab will, in fact, improve overall survival, and I think this will become a new standard of care for recurrent glioblastoma. It is a de facto standard of care today in the United States for treating recurrent glioblastoma, but and has an accelerated FDA approval for such an indication, but much like the controversy now roiling about breast cancer and the use of bevacizumab, this is truly an unanswered question, and the ERTC trial is an attempt, I think, to clarify that. Although I have to say, you know, from oncologists looking at the perspective of cross-oncology, to me, it seems kind of different in terms of the fact that you see significant single-agent activity in GBM, whereas in breast cancer and a lot of other solid tumors, you don't. That's absolutely correct. One of the unique characteristics of glioblastoma is that, to date, we have had no evidence of chemosynergy, which has really been a requirement in all other trials to show efficacy of bevacizumab where it's been added to an effective regimen, whether it's non-small cell lung cancer, breast cancer, head and neck cancer, or colorectal cancer. There are, however, compelling other cancers that have single agent activity, ovarian, endometrial, and renal cancer are three that come to mind that suggest that bevacizumab doesn't always require a cytotoxic chemotherapy partner for efficacy. And you have a really great paper in Clinical Medicine Insights, Bevacizumab for the Treatment of Recurrent Glioblastoma, really comprehensive. Maybe you can go through a few of the things that you went through in this article and as you thought about putting the article together, and particularly the issue of the biology of GBM and how it might tie into anti-VEGF treatment. In many experimental models of angiogenesis, glioblastoma is often utilized 
because of the extremely high microvascular density, suggesting that there's very robust angiogenesis histologically. And secondly, if one does a molecular analysis of tumor content, either within tumor or the extracellular milieu of vascular endothelial growth factor, those levels are extremely high in glioblastoma, suggesting that this is an ideal candidate for angiogenic inhibition. And I think that led to a solid experimental platform to which to treat glioblastoma. And then that subsequently led to clinical trials in humans, initially single institution trials, and then ultimately the brain and the NCI trials, which led to the accelerated approval for glioblastoma in first or second relapse. Maybe you can provide an update on where we are right now with bevacizumab in terms of clinical research, what we know about it in terms of reported trials. So the two trials that led to its approval, the BRAIN trial, which was a non-comparator trial between bevacizumab as single agent versus bevacizumab plus arenotecan. And unfortunately, the trial was never designed to compare those two arms, albeit that has happened again and again, but suggest that overall survival was similar in both arms, albeit objective radiographic response and progression-free survival at six months are usual clinical endpoint for recurrent glioblastoma trials, slightly favored, but only as a trend, the use of combination therapy. And it was based really on this analysis that led the FDA to approve in an accelerated manner bevacizumab as a single agent for recurrent glioblastoma. That trial was predominantly done in patients at first relapse. The NCI trial, which was a smaller trial, 165 or so patients versus approximately 50 patients, studied patients in a single arm with bevacizumab only at second or third relapse and showed very similar objective radiographic response rates, progression-free survival at six months, and overall survival. And we're unable to show a clear benefit in patients who progressed on bevacizumab as single agent, adding arenotecan as a salvage therapy in combination and continuation with bevacizumab. And it was really on the basis of those two trials that led to the accelerated approval. It was then decided as required by the FDA to move forward with two large trials to validate these results and move from an accelerated approval to a full approval. And those two trials, interestingly, took a slightly different strategy and suggested if, in fact, this drug is as active and provides progression-free survival and overall survival benefits in the recurrent setting, let us apply it in the upfront setting. And that was, in fact, done. And both of those trials have now closed. The large European trial, Avaglia, compared standard treatment with or without bevacizumab, with bevacizumab starting during radiation therapy. And similarly, in the United States, RTOG0825 has done the same. Both of those trials closed this spring, and we are likely to get early results next year. Now, there have been two single institution trials that perhaps will predict somewhat what we can expect from these two large randomized phase three trials for newly diagnosed glioblastoma, one from UCLA and one from Duke. And in both instances, interestingly, the overall survival was increased from our standard therapy, which in 2005 and based on the large EOTC trial with temozolomide suggested a median overall survival of approximately 14 and a half months. 
And in both of the upfront bevacizumab trials, one from UCLA and the other from Duke, suggested that median overall survival was approximately 20 months. UCLA did, I think, an interesting analysis, and this was reported in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, in that they took a contemporary group treated with standard therapy, the majority of whom saw bevacizumab not up front, but at time of recurrence, as is commonly done today in the community, and actually showed almost an identical overall survival. So it begs the question, when is bevacizumab best used in patients with glioblastoma, up front or at recurrence? In your own practice, how do you utilize bevacizumab, if at all, and how is that influenced by reimbursement as opposed to you know what you really want to do? Well, I think at this time, outside of a clinical trial, I would not recommend bevacizumab to be used in the upfront setting, in the adjuvant setting. So rather, I defer bevacizumab and use it at time of recurrence. Now, the challenge that we've discovered with bevacizumab, that in patients who ultimately and essentially all patients will progress on bevacizumab, these patients have very poor median survival, approximately three to four months after we've documented radiographic or clinical progression on bevacizumab. And to date, we do not have an effective therapy for these patients. And this has been a very significant unmet need in neuro-oncology. So our own practice in patients who fail standard therapy is introduce a clinical trial at that time in bevacizumab-naive patients. And once those patients have progressed on a clinical trial, or possibly two, then transition patients to bevacizumab, since bevacizumab appears as effective at first or second relapse following temozolomide. You also, in the article, review the side effects tolerability issues with bevacizumab. Any, and of course, oncologists are familiar with this from many other cancers, but anything specific in terms of people with primary GBM? I think the biggest challenge is there is a spontaneous rate of intratumoral hemorrhage in glioblastoma. And in patients being treated with bevacizumab, there is, of course, the concern that that has either been aggravated or amplified by concomitant bevacizumab use. And consequently, there is this fear that this side effect may have a profound impact on patients. It's proven to be relatively uncommon as symptomatic hemorrhage, but it is not infrequent to find patients who have small levels of asymptomatic and radiographically defined hemorrhage in the tumor on bevacizumab. And our own practice is to continue that. And I think that's a fairly large challenge for clinical community-based oncologists to be comfortable with that concept, since that is quite a feared complication. I mean, there are a number of other complications with bevacizumab use, but by and large, those are in single digits and relatively uncommon and not different than what we see in bevacizumab use for other solid cancers. You had this case report in the Journal of Neuro-Oncology, recurrent spinal cord glioblastoma, which I didn't even know existed, therapy with bevacizumab. Can you comment on that? I think the neuro-oncology community is looking for new applications of drugs that are approved for use in brain tumors as well as spinal cord tumors. Spinal cord tumors only constitute 1 to 12 in total of the number of brain tumors. So these are really quite infrequent tumors, and glioblastomas are perhaps the most infrequent of spinal cord tumors. But in a neuro-oncology clinic, we do see these, and these appear to have a response not dissimilar to those seen in brain. 
But to date, the majority of studies, essentially all studies, have studied glioblastoma in brain in the cerebral hemispheres and not treated, for example, glioblastoma of the brainstem or glioblastoma of the spinal cord. But I think one can begin to extrapolate, as we did in this case series, to suggest that glioblastoma of any location in the central nervous system may be equally responsive to bevacizumab. Any particular patients in that series that you might want to comment on? Well, the problem with spinal cord tumors is that patients typically have fairly profound symptoms as a consequence of involvement of the spinal cord in that, recall, the spinal cord is only as large as your pinky, and it takes a very small mass to have very, very profound consequences for the patient. And so having another agent treat patients with glioblastoma in that location would certainly be welcomed. It is highly unlikely, however, that we're going to ever have any formal trials utilizing bevacizumab in this patient population because it's so infrequent. In that trial, a majority of patients had clinical benefit. It improved pain control, often improved motor symptoms, not often autonomic dysfunction, but had that same benefit. Bevacizumab has been used in another application, and that is for radiation-related treatment injury, both in the spine as well as in brain. And there are predominantly case reports in brain and one small series from MD Anderson suggesting that in patients who have symptomatic radiation injury, bevacizumab given over a relatively short course, three or four treatments at lower dose than we typically treat brain cancer, that is with five milligrams per kilogram every two to three weeks for a total of three or four treatments, oftentimes has an arresting effect on this and can symptomatically improve patients fairly dramatically. There are similarly some two small case reports, one of which is ours, that suggest that it may be equally applicable to radiation injury to the spine and most often the cervical spine as seen in patients with head and neck cancer. That's interesting. Now, is that mainly radiation associated with primary CNS tumors or any source of radiation? any source of radiation. So we have treated patients who have had head and neck cancers who develop radiation necrosis, for example, of the temporal lobes if they had a parasinal tumor and had effective response with bevacizumab, as well as having treated, for example, a pharyngeal cancer that received high-dose radiation therapy to the cervical spinal cord. And these patients had benefit with bevacizumab in a similar instance. That's interesting. So, and I'm just, you know, based on what you're saying in terms of this radiation thing, I'm just kind of curious, and I think I actually saw a paper you wrote on pseudoprogression. Can you explain what pseudoprogression is, and does bevacizumab affect that? An interesting question. Pseudoprogression is a early treatment-related effect that mimics early disease progression and is most often identified in patients with glioblastoma, but not exclusively in patients with glioblastoma who complete chemoradiotherapy and undergo their first post-chemoradiotherapy MR scan. And it's that first scan that the majority of these patients appear to have radiographic disease progression. And that constitutes perhaps 20 to 30 percent of all patients with glioblastoma who at the time of their first MR image post-radiotherapy are discovered to have apparent progression. And adjudicating between true early disease progression, and what we have termed and others have termed pseudoprogression has proved very challenging. 
advanced imaging, particularly perfusion, may suggest a difference. And in fact, there was an ASCO platform that spoke to the use of MR perfusion as a way to distinguish between these two entities with radiation treatment effects, so-called pseudoprogression, having relatively low perfusion, whereas early progression, much like the primary cancer, showing relatively high perfusion. But in general, we have not been able to easily adjudicate between these two common findings. And so what operationally has been done and what has been reported in the so-called new RANO criteria, the radiology assessment and neuro-oncology that was reported approximately a year and a half ago in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, is to suggest operationally pseudoprogression is defined as disease progression following planned therapy, meaning to say that in patients who have apparent disease progression at first post-radiation MR, that you move forward with planned post-radiation temozolomide, re-image, and if they show involution of the disease, where it appears to be improving both symptomatically and radiographically, or at least stabilizing, that suggests and what we are operationally now calling pseudoprogression. And I think where we see a breakdown amongst clinical oncologists is that first MR scan is read as progression, pseudoprogression is not considered, and then some alternative treatment is applied, and oftentimes we walk away from what is in fact effective treatment and treatment effect. Whether or not that treatment effect leads to a better survival is still somewhat arguable and not yet clear. So why don't we go through your cases and kind of get more into actually how some of this clinical research applies to your own practice. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your 64-year-old man. Certainly. So recently saw a 64-year-old man who has a left insular tumor. So a tumor at the confluence of the frontal and temporal lobes in and about the sylvian fissure. Because of its location, this patient could only undergo biopsy, and so therefore was a non-resectable tumor and had otherwise normal performance, as is common, but I think importantly, does not affect treatment at present. An MGMT analysis was performed of the tumor. And so this enzyme, as I mentioned earlier, suggests that newly diagnosed glioblastoma can be stratified into two large groups, one group having overexpression of this enzyme and being relatively resistant to alkylator-based therapy and therefore having a shortened survival on average approximately one year, that group constituting 70% of patients, and then the smaller group of patients, 30% of patients, who have MGMT underexpressed, so-called MGMT-methylated group, and that group of patients has a median survival of nearly two years. As best as we can determine at present, this is prognostic and not predictive, meaning to say that treatment does not impact outcome, but is a highly powerful prognostic quality. At present, we do not have any treatment to suggest for one of these two groups of patients, but patients often drive this request in that this is now a commercially available laboratory test from LabCorp in North Carolina, onchimethylone, and it certainly influences patients in terms of how they strategize and how they plan to go forward. And so the real issue is, how would you treat such a patient knowing the methylation status of the patient's tumor? And at this point in time, outside of a clinical trial, these patients should continue to be treated with standard chemoradiation followed by post-radiation temozolomide. 
So what happened with this patient? This patient declined a clinical trial, elected to be treated near home, and was treated with standard therapy using temozolomide in combination with involved field radiotherapy. What's his current situation? He's in cycle four of post-radiation temozolomide and clinically stable at this time. How about your 59-year-old man? So this is another patient with basically a non-resectable tumor. His tumor involved the left frontal lobe and the anterior aspect of the corpus callosum, and it was really the midline involvement of the corpus callosum, which permitted him only to undergo a partial resection. And this resection, I might add, was performed with the use of 5-ALA. 5-ALA is now approved in Europe and is a porphyrin compound that is given orally six hours before surgery and at time of surgery using the microscope provided for surgeons. One can irradiate it with blue light and the blue light causes this porphyrin compound to fluoresce pink. And so this at time of surgery allows the surgeon basically to be able to see the extent of the tumor in vivo. But unfortunately, this drug is not yet approved for use in the United States. It can only be used on clinical trials, and we are conducting such a trial at the University of Washington. So despite using 5-ALA, the patient could only undergo a subtotal resection. His tumor also turned out to be unmethylated, but he was left with a fairly large mass despite surgery and the use of 5-ALA, and move forward on standard chemoradiation. And it was during chemoradiation that he became increasingly steroid-dependent and began to fail with regards to his clinical performance. And this is not an uncommon scenario in patients who have unresectable tumors. And I would contend that a way to salvage such patients, what we've done in the past is put them on very high-dose steroids and attempt to get them through chemoradiation, usually at the expense of significant steroid morbidity, is that this is an application of bevacizumab given up front to permit patients to complete standard therapy. And so this patient, because of clinical deterioration, despite high-dose steroids and increasing steroid morbidity, was crossed over from steroids to bevacizumab permitting him to complete therapy and move forward with bevacizumab plus temozolomide. And he continues now on post-radiation temozolomide plus bevacizumab. The problem, of course, in giving it up front at this time is that when he does ultimately progress, then he does not have a good alternative having progressed now on both temozolomide and bevacizumab. That's really fascinating. How do you handle or how did you handle on his situation stopping the steroids, tapering the steroids, and what happened to his steroid-related side effects? So we've noted, and as I think eloquently stated in the BRAIN and the NCI trials for recurrent glioblastoma, that two-thirds or more of patients with glioblastoma at recurrence who are on steroids, steroids can either be discontinued or reduced by more than 50%. And this effect seems independent of what radiographic response is seen. So there's a dissociation between an antiperitumoral effect with bevacizumab versus its cytostatic effect on tumor. So in general, one anticipates a steroid-sparing effect with bevacizumab 
which has, I think, a tremendous quality of life benefit for patients with glioblastoma, as it did in this patient, and allowed us to get this patient off steroids completely, and his steroid morbidity predominantly manifested as cutaneous side effects, weight gain, as well as proximal lower extremity myopathy, all resolved off steroids and on bevacizumab only. Do you actually stop the steroids at the time the bevacizumab started, or do you wait until the symptoms start to get better? So in general, because the effect on steroid sparing and peritumoral edema is so common and so profound, I typically will decrease steroids from anywhere from a third to a half following the first administration of bevacizumab within 24, 48 hours. At second treatment, if patients are continuing to do well, then we continue the steroid taper and then make a decision typically before the third treatment with a repeat MR scan as to the feasibility of discontinuing temozolomide altogether. There is no standard of how to taper steroids, and so this is more the art of medicine than the science of medicine. What do you see on imaging in these patients, and what do you see in this man? Do you see decreases in edema, or is there anything specific? In patients who don't have the complication of peritumoral changes seen as a consequence of radiation therapy, much as in this man, though they will evolve over time, most of the non-contrast enhancing T2-weighted and flare signal changes that we see likely represent a large component of peritumoral edema, and that dramatically improves with bevacizumab as it did in this patient. What do you see in these patients in terms of hypertension, proteinuria, nosebleeds, and what did you see in him? I myself have found epistaxis or nosebleeds relatively uncommon. More commonly, hypertension, that's seen probably in close to 10% of patients. It's more of a challenge in patients who come to treatment with pre-existing hypertension on polytherapy, but certainly can emerge in patients who were not previously hypertensive and is usually and typically easily managed by one or two antihypertensive medications. That is without doubt the most common side effect. There's been concern that DVTs and PE is increased with the use of bevacizumab. There's been a recent meta-analysis in the Journal of Clinical Oncology suggesting in other cancers where this same testimonial has been made of the increased incidence of DVTs and PEs, for example, in pancreatic cancer, non-small cell lung cancer, this was in fact not shown, suggesting that perhaps there is not an increased incidence of venous thromboemboli with bevacizumab use, but there certainly remains a risk for arterial thromboemboli, albeit that risk is low and approximately 1%. Proteinuria is not uncommon, but it is typically asymptomatic and relatively low-grade, and to date, I have not treated a patient who has gone on and developed nephrotic syndrome, causing one to discontinue bevacizumab, though it's certainly reported as a rare side effect. So what happened in this man? Did he have hypertension or any other problems? He did not. How about your 61-year-old man? So the third case is a 61-year-old patient who had a tumor in the right frontal lobe that proved to be a glioblastoma. Postoperative MR imaging, which is routinely done by ourselves and others within 24 to 72 hours following surgery, verified complete resection. So the contrast-enhancing tumor volume is no longer present. Where this becomes somewhat more complicated is that we recognize that 
even in glioblastoma, there are components of the tumor which are non-contrast enhancing. So when we talk about a complete resection, by and large, we're talking about the contrast enhancing tumor volume. The RANO working group that I mentioned earlier is working on a new paper that has been accepted in the Journal of Neurosurgery that will speak to some of these operational definitions of patients with regards to extent of resection, including contrast-enhancing tumor volume and non-contrast-enhancing tumor volume. In this patient, he had a contrast-enhancing tumor volume complete image-verified resection. He was also determined to be in that 30% category where he has a favorable MGMT profile, that is, the promoter was methylated. And again, because he elected to be treated in the community and not at the university, he was not treated on a clinical trial and was treated with chemoradiation for a total of 12 cycles. And the duration of post-radiation temozolomide is interesting and remains an unanswered question. The original trial from the ERTC suggested that six treatments of post-radiation temozolomide was sufficient, and in fact, 40% of patients prescribed temozolomide in the post-radiation treatment period received the six month of treatment. What has become more common in the United States, however, is to continue treatment as long as patients tolerate therapy, and it is not uncommon to see treatment at 12 months or even longer. So this patient was treated with 12 months of post-radiation temozolomide and elected to come off temozolomide at that time and was followed with surveillance MR imaging and then subsequently shown to have radiographic disease progression. And it's now this conundrum as to how best to treat a patient with presumed recurrent glioblastoma who has completed a course of temozolomide lasting as long as a year and has a relatively small volume disease recurrence. What was his clinical status at that point? Was he having symptoms? He was asymptomatic. So he had a radiographic evidence of disease progression only. So what are the options, both on study and off study, for a patient like this? Well, one option clearly would be consideration for reoperation. With relatively small tumor volume and being asymptomatic, my own enthusiasm is relatively low to put a patient through a, a second surgery for a relatively small tumor burden. But that would be one consideration. What is also discussed in the NCCN guidelines in patients with recurrent glioblastoma is a consideration for re-radiation. And with relatively small tumor volume, he could be treated in a stereotactic manner, either with single fraction or multi-fraction stereotactic radiotherapy using either a LINAC-based radiotherapy suite or gamma knife. So that would be yet another consideration for this patient. Clearly, this patient would be a very good candidate to consider for a clinical trial given that he has had standard therapy only. As well, he might be considered to move forward with bevacizumab with or without a partner, albeit the FDA has decided and recommended that bevacizumab be used as a single agent for recurrent glioblastoma. I didn't mention, but should mention, that another possibility, should he undergo surgery, a consideration could be made for implantation with gliadel, these BCNU or carmustin wafers, could be applied as well. So what actually happened with him? He uh, elected to go forward on a clinical trial with bendamustin. Hmm, interesting. What happened? He had um, disease progression at his second month of treatment on bendamustin, and at that point had sufficient tumor volume, had mild symptoms, predominantly headache, that he went forward with a surgery. And following recovery from surgery, 
and with a delay of four weeks to allow proper wound healing, since wound healing can be an issue with use of angiogenic inhibition, he then was treated with single agent bevacizumab. And what's his current status? He's stable. We know from the brain trial, where there's now some long-term data, that of patients with recurrent glioblastoma that are treated with bevacizumab, 35% of patients will continue on treatment at one year, and approximately 17% of patients will continue on treatment at two years. What we don't know is, should we modify the schedule in responding patients in that treatment given every two weeks for two years is both time and resource intense? And I believe you were part of a study that looked at bevacizumab every three weeks, I believe, a phase two trial. Correct. The first author, Razor. Right. So that Jeff Razor from Northwestern in Chicago, we performed a phase two study asking the question, which has really never been answered in treatment of recurrent glioblastoma, what should be, in fact, the appropriate schedule of bevacizumab? There are studies that have suggested that 5 milligrams given weekly, 10 milligrams per kilogram given every two weeks, which is the standard, or as in this study, 15 milligrams per kilogram given every three weeks may all be equi-efficacious and may lead perhaps to a consideration of spreading out the frequency of treatment, which clearly would be far more patient-friendly. What do you do in your own practice, and what did you do with him, for example? What we've increasingly done is after one year of treatment, and this is arbitrary, one perhaps could make the same argument after six months of treatment, that one could change from an every two-week schedule to an every three-week schedule. What we haven't clearly decided is do we keep the same dose-dense schedule of bevacizumab of basically five milligrams per kilogram per week in the razor study that you mentioned that was given at 15 milligrams per kilogram every three weeks, which duplicates that five milligram per kilogram weekly treatment. It may be equally effective, and Duke, for example, often dose reduces and goes to an every three-week schedule using seven and a half milligrams per kilogram given every three weeks once you've had a long, stable disease pattern on bevacizumab. Certainly the Q3 week interval is something oncologists are familiar with. Anything that we haven't talked about today that you want to bring up? You covered a lot of stuff. It's been really informative. Absolutely. I think one thing that has changed since 2005 when we had the original ERTC trial that reported on temozolomide is that we've come to believe that in protocol-eligible patients, and I think this is important because that trial was performed in patients with good performance status 70 or younger. And in general, this is not always the cohort of patients treated by clinical oncologists. But if we consider this protocol-eligible group of patients, we had originally thought that if treated with temozolomide, average survival was around 14 and a half months. I think we've now come to appreciate with increased recognition of complications of treatment like pseudoprogression and better salvage therapies like bevacizumab, that our median survival for protocol-eligible patients now with glioblastoma is probably moved much closer to 18 to 20 months. And so this is a fundamental shift wherein before we were talking about average survival of less than a year. And again, I think it's important to emphasize this is for protocol-eligible patients. There are a large group of patients who are not protocol eligible and their survival does not match those figures.